0: Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have tonight to come in your house, and thank you for uh, everyone who's here tonight, Lord, and the fact that they uh, made priority uh, church a priority and your word a priority, Lord, and I pray that you would uh, help us as we open up your word now, that we would learn something. Lord, you speak through me. Help me to speak clearly and help, uh, help us to be changed, Lord. May your word speak to our hearts and so challenge us, and we'll thank you for it, Lord. May we be more equipped uh, to handle our emotions and control them biblically because of tonight. And uh, that's the goal, and we'll thank you for it, Lord, if you allow us to accomplish it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to spend a few minutes just kind of recapping what we talked about last week. Uh, Last week, we discussed two specific emotions, and those were fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. Uh, We talked about, first of all, when we talked about fear, we talked about the fact that there are two different types of fear. Uh, We talked about the fact that there's the fear of the Lord... And there's the spirit of fear. One is very healthy, one is very right, one is very unhealthy, and one's very harmful. The fear of the Lord is something that's been commanded for us to do. Many times in Proverbs it says to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know it's an important thing for us to have uh, respect and awe and reverence for God. It means for us to keep him uh, in the proper place in our life. But we also learned about a second type of fear, and that was the spirit of fear. We said that many Christians today are living in a spirit of fear, a constant state of being afraid, and that a spirit of fear brings forth doubt in God's word and disobedience to God's will. And that was the kind of uh, fear that we kind of attacked last week. And we made one big statement about fear, and that was this. We must fight fear with faith in God's promises. We must fight fear in faith with God's promises. We looked at Isaiah chapter number 40, and we looked at uh, specific promises that God made the children of Israel and promises that he makes to us he promised them number one his presence he said fear not for I am with thee he promises that he'll always be with us and that same promise he makes to us he will never leave us or forsake us he also promises provision he's not just here to be a bystander or be a witness he's here to help he says I will help thee I will uphold thee and we talked about the fact that that word's the same word that the Bible uses when it talks about um, Moses fighting the Amalekites. And Aaron and Hur coming alongside and lifting up his hands. And the fact that God wants to uphold us, wants to lift us up when we struggle. So he promises his presence, his provision, and lastly his, his person. He says, I am thy God, and that's the promise he makes to us. He is our God, he is the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God who promises to ever be with us. We said this, we cannot fight fears with faith in God's promises if we do not know what God's promises are. And so that's why it's so important through uh, scripture reading, through scripture memorization, through the preaching of God's word, through biblical music, uh, to get God's promises into our lives so that we can hold to them in times when we need them. I think there might be a few more chairs on the rack back there if we need them. Then we discussed the difference between fear and anxiety. We said that fear is an emotion that's rooted in a real physical threat, where anxiety is rooted in the possibility of one. We use this example. Fear is the feeling you get when you're in a car accident spinning into a ditch. Anxiety is the feeling you get the next day that stops you from wanting to get in the car and drive. We said anxiety is often the culprit for keeping many Christians stuck in that cycle of fear because it's asking the question, what if? And you're reviewing possibilities of what could go wrong in your head, asking that question, what if? Anxiety is a present emotion of fear. Oh, let me jump back here. A present emotion of fear produced by the uncertainty of the future. It's a feeling that we feel right now based on something that's uncertain in the future. And we said people who struggle with anxiety have a constant conversation going with themselves. It's that self-talk of doubt and of fear all day long, rehearsing the terrible possibilities of what could happen. And eventually, we discuss those fantasized fears in our minds so much that they become the very reality we live in, and we're stuck in this cycle. And so we said this, we need to learn to speak truths to ourselves. If we're going to break the cycle of anxiety, we need to learn to speak the truth of God into our hearts and to change the narrative that's going on in our brain. And in conclusion, last week we said this. God promises joy and God promises peace specifically to his children. The world is not interested in a God who promises peace if they do not see peace in you. And so as children of God, we have access to the peace that passes all understanding, and that's the kind of peace that we can live with. And so that's just a quick recap of last week. And so this week, again, we're going to discuss two specific emotions, and those emotions are these, anger and joy, anger and joy. And so we'd like to start tonight with anger, with anger. Now, some of you are saying this tonight, perfect, this lesson is for the rage-filled angry man the man who lashes out in temper, and you're right. But this lesson is not just for that man. This lesson is also for you. See, the truth is anger is a human emotion that's common to all. Just because we do not all express our anger uh, like a parent at a hockey game, right? (laughs) A mad, angry dad at a hockey game. Just because we don't all express our anger that way doesn't mean we all don't struggle with anger. Narina uh, Ramlakhan, a neurophysiologist neurophysi- uh, at Capio Nightingale Hospital in London was quoted in an article in an article, uh, Why Anger is Bad for You. Sorry, that's a tongue twister. She, she was quoted in this article and she said this, We used to divide people into two types, A and B. The A's were driven, aggressive. They were associated with anger and heart attacks and stroke. The B's were calmer and we thought healthier. But now we just separate differently, uh, those people differently into those who hold rage in and those who express it out. You see, in science, it's very clear, it's not a matter of some are angry and some are not angry. It's just a matter of we're all angry. Some express it outwardly and some contain it inwardly. And so tonight, you may not be someone who's characterized by anger to your friends or to your family or someone in this church, but at times, we all struggle with anger. And the the truth is, the people in this room who we might think less, least likely to struggle with anger might be the people struggling with it the most because they are bottling it as opposed to expressing it. It's important as we move forward to know this, that anger is not inherently wrong or sinful. There's nothing wrong with anger specifically itself. Anger is an emotion, and we discussed the first week, that emotions are blessings, not curses. They're given from God. I truly believe that anger was given to Adam and Eve prior to the fall. It's not an emotion that they developed after sinning. No, that was an emotion that God had given them before the fall. It's not inherently wrong or sinful, though oftentimes we think that it is. But just like we discuss with fear, there's a spirit of fear and a sinful fear. The fear. Oh, there's a spirit of fear, which is the sinful fear, and the fear of the Lord. There's two types of anger as well. There's a righteous anger and a sinful anger. There is a righteous anger. There is a type of anger that is right and that is good. It is not sinful. A common example of this was found in John chapter number two. I understand that might be a little small to read, but John chapter number two in verse 13, the Bible says this. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple that those sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cores, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten him up. We see very clearly, and this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the very first things he does in his ministry is get angry. He turns over the tables in a fit of outrage. It's anger, but we know biblically that Jesus did not sin, therefore it is not a sinful anger, it's a righteous anger. We could define righteous anger like this. God-given energy intended to help us solve problems. There's times that God gives us a righteous anger, an energy which can help us to actually solve a problem. And that's not wrong at all. It's said that injustice is the root of anger. And many times with righteous anger, the root is injustices. You know, for us to see an injustice like the fact that So many, a huge percentage of the world doesn't have clean drinking water. That should make us a little angry. That should make us a little frustrated. That should give us some energy to say, hey, I wanna make a difference. I wanna get involved. I'm gonna solve this problem. If we truly love people, we will often feel angry. If you love somebody and you want what's best for them and you want God's will in their life and the person you love is choosingly, willfully choosing sin and choosing less than God's best and you really love them, that should bring forth anger because you want what's best for them and you know that's not right. And so God gives you that energy to be able to get involved and to help them and encourage them and exhort them unto good works. God gives us anger for a reason. But it's important for us to know that anger does not equal hate. Oftentimes we get confused. Well, as Christians, we should not be angry. No, as Christians, we shouldn't be hateful, but we can be angry. Those two things are not the same. The problem is when our anger leads us to hateful actions, if we're dealing with a friend who's struggling in sin and that makes us angry because we love them and we want the best for them, if they perceive the way we go to them as hate, we're probably doing something wrong. We still need to go to them in a right spirit. We still need to go to them with encouraging and exhortation. But see, the problem is not that anger, and anger does not equal hate. Jesus was angry, but he was not hateful. He, he took the energy that God gave him to solve the problem. He did not hate the people. There's a very big difference. And so we see righteous anger, but we also see number two, there is definitely a sinful anger. And that's what we're gonna spend most of our time on tonight is that sinful anger. A good example of sinful anger in the Bible is found in Matthew chapter five, verse 22. The Bible says this, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raca shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. I want us to notice tonight that sinful anger is a fruit, not a root. It's a fruit, not a root. Just like we discussed in the first week that emotions are gauges, not guides, anger is a sign that there is a root inside of us that's wrong. And it's expressing in a fact, it's it's the fruit of our life, it's the produce, the production of what's going on, in our hearts the Bible says in Mark chapter number 7 and verse 20 and he said that which cometh out of the man that defileth the man for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders thefts covetousness wickedness deceit lasciviousness an evil eye blasphemy pride foolishness all these things come from within and file the man and defile the man You see, that sinful anger is a fruit of what's going on inside. There's some sort of frustration, there's some sort of resentment, there's some sort of bitterness that's taken a hold in our life and it comes out, it expresses itself as anger. There's a lot of different roots that could be a problem, it could be pride. Oftentimes somebody hurts our pride. They treat us wrong, not because they really treated us wrong but because they simply hurt our pride. They hurt the idea of who we think we are and so it expresses itself as anger. It could be humiliation, right? It could be resentment. There's all kinds of things that can uh, bring out the fruit of anger. But not only is sinful anger a fruit, not a root, but notice secondly with me that sinful anger isolates. It doesn't vindicate. We often think with our anger that it's going to solve problems. We think if I get angry with the person who's hurt me, then I will get revenge. It means the answer to the problem. I will get back at them by being angry. But it's important for us to know that anger, sinful anger in our hearts, does not vindicate any injustice. All it simply does is isolate us. It builds a a wall of injustices, and really what it does is, brick by brick, laying on resentment, injustice, frustration, it builds a prison when we build ourselves into the prison of anger and it isolates us from the world where we think we have to get back at everybody but all we're doing is hurting our relationships. We see this in Matthew chapter number 5 again in the next two verses. Therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest there that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Here's what God is saying, don't try to get close to me at the altar if you have aught with your brother. Because anger, bitterness, those kind of roots of resentment in our life, they distance ourselves from the world, from our relationships, and in turn, by distancing ourselves horizontally, we distance ourselves from God. God says, don't come to the altar to bring a gift to me if you know you have aught towards your brother. He's like, leave it at the altar, go get that taken care of first, because we see anger destroys relationships. It destroys our physical relationships, our family relationships, And it destroys our spiritual relationship with God anger builds a prison and it puts us inside we see this even in the Bible the Bible says in Proverbs 22 make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man shalt thou not go the Bible even commands us to avoid angry people and when we get angry all we do is isolate push those away because we have resentments against the world and in turn it turns us away from God anger destroys intimacy in relationships, both with God and with the people here on earth. And so as we look at sinful anger, I wanna answer two questions tonight. Two questions, and the first question, uh, if you guys would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians four, we'll be there uh, most of the rest of the time uh, discussing anger. But the first of the two questions um, that I want to ask tonight and try to answer is this. How do I know if my anger is righteous Or sinful how do you know if your anger is righteous or sinful And that's a tough discussion I've often heard well there's a pretty good chance your anger is not righteous which is probably true but that's not maybe a good enough answer a good enough evaluation for our lives how can we know if the anger we feel is righteous or sinful I'd like to look at five points that we could use as a checklist tonight quickly to determine whether our our anger is righteous or sinful. They're all questions. Number one, does your anger have a right cause? Notice I said a right cause, not just a cause. Anger always has a cause. Very rarely are we just angry for no reason. There's usually something that causes us to be angry. The question is not is there a cause, the question is is there a right cause? Is there a biblical cause? Matthew chapter number 5 again says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And I truly believe that verse is saying without a right cause, without a just cause. Ask yourself, is there an honest, right, just cause for my anger? If your anger again is a social injustice or the fact that you know, most of the languages in the world don't have a Bible in their language, That's a just cause for anger. And God gives us energy to solve problems. But if our cause of our anger is that somebody hurt our pride, that's not a right biblical cause. And so that's one of the uh, points we can use as a checkpoint. Say, how do I know if my, my anger is righteous or sinful? Number one, does it have a right cause? Number two, does your anger lead you to sin? We discussed in week number one that emotions always lead to action. And that emotions can lead us to either godly actions or sinful actions. Anger is no differently, no different. The Bible says in Ephesians four twenty six, and this is very interesting, it says, be ye angry and sin not. Once again, emphasizing the fact that there's nothing wrong with being angry, but do not allow your anger to lead you to sin. You see, if your anger leads you to solve problems that need solving, it's probably good anger. But if your anger is causing you to have hateful speech, if your anger is leading you to abusive actions or words, if your anger is leading you to gossip or slander about other people, and if your anger is leading you to disobedience or rebellion against authority or against God specifically, chances are it's not a righteous anger. Ask yourself, what actions does my anger lead me to? Does my anger lead me into sin? Number three, does your anger linger? Does it stick around? Ephesians 4.26 says, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. We know that in dealing with anger, it's important to deal with it quickly. If you have an anger that just seems to linger and you can't get over it and you can't stop being frustrated and you can't stop being angry with this person and every time you see them, it's frustrating you. You don't want to go to those events because you don't want to be around them. Every time you see them, you get mad. You're boiling up inside. Chances are it's not a righteous anger it's a sinful anger number four does your anger cause you to attack the person rather than the problem sinful anger often causes us to hurt and attack people when we're really frustrated with problems there are problems in our life and they do cause frustrations and sometimes they can cause us to be angry but that anger has taken a sinful role in your life as if it, if it causes you to hurt and to lash out at people rather than solve problems. Oftentimes when we get frustrated, maybe we're coming home from work and we had a rough day and things didn't go well. And so we get home and maybe we're meeting our wife or our husband or our kids at the door and they say something and we lash out at them. What are we doing? We're taking home the anger, the frustrations from work and we're attacking the people who had nothing to do with the, the problem instead of attacking the problem. You see, God gives us energy in anger but he gives us that energy to solve the problem not to attack the people. So ask yourself, does my anger cause me to attack the people more than the problem? Ephesians chapter four says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him all things which is the head even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto edifying itself in love. If we're going to encourage others and help others we gotta speak the truth in love and if your anger is causing you to do the opposite it's sinful. It's sinful. And the last question we can ask ourselves in evaluating our anger is this. Does your anger cause you to lash out without restraint? Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11 says, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. Oftentimes, anger, because that word anger does mean energy, but also it has the biblical picture of a boiling pot. That anger boiling up inside of us, right? And you can almost see that in somebody as they get to get angry, right? Their face turns red. It's like you can see the emotion, the frustration, the rage building up inside of them. And if our anger is constantly or often taking us to the point of blowing over, bubbling over, lashing out at those around us, chances are that's a sinful anger. And so, our first question tonight is how can we tell? And we've, we've looked at five uh, questions we could put on a checklist. And these would be practical things for you to learn, to memorize, to put on your phone. And the next time you're feeling angry, you can evaluate and say, is this a righteous anger or is this a sinful anger? And so now that we've determined what is right and what is sinful, the question is then has to be, number two, how do I overcome my sinful anger? Chances are all of us, or if not the large majority of us in this room, struggle at times with sinful anger anger so how can we overcome it if you get one statement regarding overcoming sinful anger it's simply this we must overcome sinful anger with forgiveness forgiveness is the way to overcome sinful anger it's like what I said before about building a prison and putting ourselves inside we build blocks of resentment and frustration and hurt and injustice and one by one, that wall begins to grow and it begins easier, It gets easier and easier to build that wall. And the only way to tear that wall down, the only way to build back relationships, to tear down barriers between you and your friends, between you and your family, between you and your God, is forgiveness. Forgiveness gets to the root of those frustrations, gets to the root of those injustices, and tears them down one by wall. One begins to tear down the wall that you've built in your life. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We must overcome our sinful anger with forgiveness. But let's look at three quick biblical truths to help us to exercise forgiveness. Because we often say in the office at church, we say this, always simple, never easy. And I've thought about that a hundred times I've been preparing these lessons the last few weeks. It seems like the answer is always simple, but never easy. It's not always the most complicated or the most complex or the hardest answer to get to, but it sometimes feels like it's the hardest action to exercise, forgiveness. So what can help us? What, what reminders can we use to help us to exercise forgiveness? Number one, remember that in forgiveness, time is of the essence. In forgiveness, time is of the essence. The longer you allow your hurts and injustices and frustrations to linger in our hearts, the more they begin to grow. It's like a crescendo in music. They just build and build and build and build. And before long, you begin to look at the person who hurts you, look at the person who you believe to uh, have done you wrong through the lens of your frustration, through the lens of your anger, and it just builds and builds and builds. No doubt there are some of us in this room who are holding on to wrongdoings that someone has done to us literally years and years ago. And the longer we wait, the harder it is to overcome it. The question I ask you is just how long? How long will we allow it to ruin our lives? How long will we allow it to build barriers in our relationships? How long will we allow it to get in between our intimacy with our God? How long? You see, in dealing with forgiveness, time is of the essence. The Bible says clearly, as we've looked at already, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And I don't necessarily believe that It it means that we literally, you know, if it happens at 11.15, we should go to bed at 11.30. But I believe the principle is simply this, is don't let it linger. Don't let it wait. If you can, do it before you go to sleep, especially in a relationship, and a married relationship. Get that right. Get that dealt with. The principle is clear. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. The longer you linger, the more you keep yourself in bondage. You see, it's been said about bitterness, and I think it's true about anger. It's the poison that we drink, hoping it will kill the other person. Oftentimes we continue to drink the bitter cup, we continue to rehash and relive the bitterness and the anger and the frustration, thinking like I said before, that it will vindicate and hurt and solve problems, but all it does is just isolate and hurt and keep us in the very bondage we're building for ourselves. So we see that in forgiveness, time is of the essence. But number two, remember this, in forgiveness, Tone is everything. And forgiveness, tone is everything. It's important to watch our tone, watch the way we say what we say when we're looking for forgiveness. It's all about tone. You ever had somebody ask you for forgiveness uh, um, for something they did wrong and you could just tell they're really not sorry? Maybe they're doing it um, because they were told to do it like a kid who's just like, oh, I'm sorry, you know. Go tell your teacher you're sorry and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. You can tell they're just not genuine. They don't mean it. Sometimes it's not that we don't mean it, but our tone communicates to the offended party that we don't mean it. So we got to be careful about our tone. My mom used to say to us when we were younger, you're not actually sorry, you're just sorry you got caught. And sometimes that's true, right? But we need to be careful to watch our tone. When we ask for forgiveness or when we go to somebody looking for forgiveness, remember to own our part. Remember to own our part. There's very few hurts and injustices that are completely one-sided. And be willing to own the fact that you've been holding on to lingering onto something that you probably shouldn't have. Oftentimes that'll kind of grease the conversation, allow that conversation to go easy. If you start by saying, hey, look, I need to apologize to you first. You did something, and I don't even know if you meant it this way, but I've been holding on to it a long time. It's been, I've been holding it into resentment, and I've had a hard time coming to you, or I've been avoiding you, and I need to apologize for that. You can, you can start by owning up to your mistakes and then say, but I gotta tell you, When you said that or when you did that, that really hurt and this is how it made me feel. You can go to that conversation and be careful about your tone. The Bible says this in Proverbs chapter five, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And Colossians chapter four verse six says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how to answer every man. In forgiveness it's not just what we say or what we ask, It's all about how we say it. So remember that time is of the essence. Number two, tone is everything. And number three, remember that in forgiveness, Christ is the example. Christ is the example. Oftentimes when we need forgiveness from people, that hurt is very real. And I don't mean to tell anybody tonight that the hurts or the frustrations that you have in your life are not real. The Bible talks about a root of bitterness. It said, Be careful lest a root of bitterness spring up. The the reason I. The Bible never says that we should tear out the root of bitterness. It just tells us that we should be careful about the root of bitterness springing up. That's interesting to me. I think, why wouldn't you just tear out a root? Right? If you know a root is there and you're watching to make sure it doesn't tear up, uh, spring up, the easiest way to just get rid of it, right? I believe the reason. the the Bible says that, is this. Because the root of bitterness is hurt. And you can't get rid of hurts. We don't forget the people have hurt us, we can't. We don't forget when we've been wronged. We don't forget when we've been humiliated. It's impossible to forget. And similarly, in anger, we don't forget how that person made us feel, we can't. But we have to be careful about letting that spring up in our hearts. And so there's very real hurts and very real injustices and we might say, That person does not deserve forgiveness. They probably don't. Oftentimes they don't. But may I remind you and may I remind myself tonight that neither did we. We didn't deserve forgiveness. God died for us. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He loved us. He offers us forgiveness time and time again. And we do not deserve it. We deserve a place called hell. We deserve to pay for our sins, but God offers us forgiveness. The basis of forgiveness is not somebody else's worth or whether they deserve it. No, the basis of forgiveness is the fact that Christ has forgiven us. Ephesians 4:32. Even as God, or forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We don't forgive others because they deserve it. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. We also see As Christ our example, we see this in Matthew chapter number 18. The Bible says in verse 21, I got the wrong verse up there, I'll read it to you. Matthew Matthew chapter number 18, the Bible says this, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Jesus has the great example of saying, hey, it's not just seven times you got to offer forgiveness. It's 70 times seven. And really what I believe him to be saying is just, you just keep offering forgiveness. As many times as it's needed. Because that's what Christ does for us. I'm glad that God doesn't give me seven chances and then call me quits. He doesn't give up on me. And so, though it's difficult, though it's simple but not easy, we must offer forgiveness to others. And so we see tonight anger. We see a righteous anger and we see a sinful anger. We see... A checklist of how we can assess our anger and we see that through forgiveness we can overcome our anger but let's continue on this evening to talk about joy let's talk about joy now joy is a great thing joy is an exciting thing joy is uh, not a sinful emotion in fact it's the opposite Anger oftentimes is a sinful emotion or emotion that leads us to sin. Joy is rarely an emotion that leads us to sin. Joy is something, in fact, that we long for. We don't long for sinful anger, but we long for joy. We have a world that's searching for joy. They may not call it joy. They may not know that they're searching for joy, but they are. They're looking for peace. They're looking for contentment. They're looking for satisfaction in every single thing. It's why Pastor Stone for years has asked the question in soul winning, is there something missing in your life? Because so many people and everyone who doesn't have God cannot experience joy. But as followers of God, just like we can experience the peace that passes understanding, we also can experience joy. And we should experience joy. I want to look at two truths tonight about joy. Number one, joy is... Is a choice joy is a choice now this is a difficult thing to say but joy is a choice and I truly believe that it's important to know this that joy does not equal happiness joy and happiness I don't believe to be the, the same thing the root of happiness the, the root word of happiness is an old Norse and old English root it's the word hap and it means this luck or chance It's built on luck or chance. And from that same root, you see a word that's kind of a combination of the word happen and the word circumstance. Again, it's an old English word, and it's the word happenstance. (laughs) And basically, it means this. It's a circumstance that just happens by luck or by chance, right? And so we see that happiness, in the very etymology of the word, in the very root of what it is, has always been built on circumstance, Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is a choice. We took the teens to Wonderland a couple weekends ago now. And uh, at Wonderland, you know, the big attraction is obviously the roller coasters, right? Uh, And I was surprised that more of the teens were afraid of the roller coasters than I thought they'd be. But specifically, one aspect of roller coasters is scary. I think to most people it's pretty universal, and especially last weekend we found that to be true. The teens were good at riding rides except for the ones that had this specific aspect. It wasn't spinning. It wasn't going upside down. It wasn't going fast. It was the drop. It's the drop right, the drop zone, or that first drop on Leviathan or Behemoth or the new one, the Yukon Striker, right? It's terrifying, the, your stomach seems to go up into your throat and you can't say anything, right? It's that terrifying 90 degree drop. That's what scares us about roller coasters. Why? Because we're changing altitudes quickly. We're going from the top peak of the park to the lowest point of the park quickly. Happiness is a lot like a roller coaster. Happiness is an emotion that's tied to the circumstances of life. And oftentimes happiness is fleeting. There's a world who can't find happiness because there's a world whose happiness is tied to their circumstances. And just as quickly as you go over the top of that drop on behemoth, that quickly things can happen in our life that can take us from the happiest point of our day to the lowest point of our day. And there so goes our emotions. And there goes our feeling. And there goes our happiness because it's tied to our circumstances. Happiness is something that honestly kind of happens to us. It's based on external forces. But in contrast, joy is a choice. You say, that sounds great, but is that in the Bible? I believe it is. Look at Philippians chapter 4 with me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. The Bible says this, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere in all things, as I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It's one of the all time misquoted verses in the Bible, right? You're getting up to do something scary, you're playing in a big sports game, you're like, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, right? Tim Tebow puts it under his eyes before the big game. I can win this game, I can do anything I I can do because I got God with me. But that's not what the context of this passage is teaching us. Paul's saying, no, I've learned how to be content through life's highs and life's lows. He's saying, I can have joy, I can have contentment no matter what the world throws at me. I can do all things through Christ. He's not saying he can conquer all things, he can win the sports game, he can preach the sermon, he can sing in church, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I can have contentment through any circumstances. I can have joy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. James chapter number one. And this is so fascinating to me. The Bible says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The Bible says, hey, when, you, when, you go through, when you're going through really tough times, temptations and trials and the testing of this life, count it all joy. That seems to be contrary. But again, it's enforcing the idea that joy is a choice. It doesn't matter if we're going through trials. It doesn't matter if we're going through temptations or testings. It's a choice. That word count means this. To lead, to go before, and to have authority over. It's the idea of a prince or a governor who rules and reigns and has authority over the people. Here's what the Bible is saying. Count it all joy. He's saying Choose joy. You lead your emotions. You have authority over your emotions. He's saying you're in control of the situation. You're the governor, you're in charge. You lead, you go before. Don't let the world tell you what happiness is. Don't let your circumstances dictate your feelings. No, you count it all joy. You choose joy when you're going through tough situations. You're in charge. You have the authority. You can choose joy. And that's the message that God has for us tonight. You are an authority over your choices. Therefore, you can choose joy. The Bible says this in Colossians 3, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. We can choose to set our affections. We can choose to have joy. The Bible says this in Psalm 37:4: delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Oftentimes, we get this wrong. We delight ourselves in our desires, and hope that we'll get joy from the Lord. But we get it out of order. The Bible says, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If you're struggling with having right desires, if you don't feel like you want to serve the Lord or to get to know the Lord or read your Bible or be in church, if you're struggling with right desires or struggling with wrong desires, chances are delights, chances are you're just following your desires. The Bible says, no, no, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a choice. I'm going to spend time with the Lord. I'm going to choose the things of God and my feelings will follow. But when we follow our feelings and we expect joy to follow after that, it never happens. Don't follow after riches, success, relationships, the perfect church, the perfect marriage, and expect to have biblical joy. No, no, follow after God wholeheartedly delight yourselves in the things of God and the desires of your life, the perfect job, the perfect relationship, the marriage centered around Christ, a great church, those things will follow because you have the right foundation, the right perspective of delighting yourself in the Lord. It's not the opposite. So when we, when we seek after the pleasures of this life and we seek after our desires, we always struggle with our delights. So choose to set your delight on the Lord. Choose to spend time with God. Choose to build a relationship with God and your desires will follow. It's like being a boat in an ocean, right? Happiness is the waves that, uh, that, that send the, the boat all over the place, that, that cause it to go up and down all over the place. Joy is the anchor that keeps us rooted in God. And really quickly, I don't want you to think we're not allowed to grieve, Choosing joy doesn't mean we're not allowed to hurt. Choosing joy in life doesn't mean we're not allowed to grieve. Choosing joy doesn't mean we're not allowed to have pain. The Bible calls Jesus himself in Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible says in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they that mourn. See, we can have joy in mourning if we choose to have joy in Jesus. Choose to joy in Jesus And our desires will follow. So we see first off that joy is a choice. And we're closing off lastly with this tonight. Joy is a constant. Joy is a constant. I truly believe, and this may be a controversial statement, I truly believe as a Christian who does not have joy is living in sin. I truly believe that biblical joy ought to be a constant of your life. I'm not saying that you're going to be happy. I'm not saying that your circumstances are great. I'm not saying you're always going to feel like it, but I truly believe that biblical joy ought to be a constant in your life as a Christian. You say, how is that possible? You've seen so many times when Christians are going through crazy circumstances that they're able to bless God and thank the Lord and have joy in Him. How is that possible? Because joy is found in Jesus. So biblical joy is constant because Biblical Jesus is constant. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. God never changes. He's the same. His person doesn't change. His love for us doesn't change. His plan for the world doesn't change. His promises don't change. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He never changes. And what he's promised to us never changes. And so therefore, our joy never has to change because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. In a football term, joy is the long game. Joy knows what the last chapter holds. Joy is a relationship with Christ. And truly, that's the joy of heaven as well, is the relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have a daily relationship with God, don't be surprised if you don't have joy. Because joy is found in the relationship of Jesus Christ. There are so many Christians saying, that's wrong, you, you, we don't have joy. It's not a sin. i would just ask you, Are you daily walking with God? And if the answer is no, don't be surprised if we don't have joy. Because joy is found in Jesus. And we see Jesus doing this very same thing when he was on the earth. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. We know that Jesus went to his father right before he died on the cross and said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I guarantee you Jesus wasn't feeling like dying on the cross, right? That wouldn't, be a, that wouldn't go along with his happiness. Now he's in the garden uh, sweating great drops of blood and asking God, if it's possible at all, would you let this cup pass from me? And it's not. And so instead of letting his feelings dictate what he does, he chooses joy. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Why did he go to the cross? To pay for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. Jesus's joy was the ability to have a relationship with us, and our joy must be found in a relationship with him. Joy is all about a relationship. Joy is all about Security. Joy is a constant because it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as simple as it sounds, we must choose joy in Jesus. We can't let our situation, we can't let our circumstances, we can't let the winds and the waves and the roller coaster of this life have an effect on how we feel. Because if we build our happiness in that, we'll be all over the place. We'll be coming over the top of the behemoth and struggling every day to have joy, but joy is found in Jesus, it's a choice we make, that we are in charge of our our joy, we set our affections on God, we delight ourselves in the Lord, we choose joy, it's a choice, and it's a constant, and so I hope tonight uh, that something has been a help to you, either with anger, or joy, or both, Um, I apologize, we have to move quickly through the content, um, but... Again, I hope it's, it's just a beginning overview. It's not an uh, extensive study, but I hope it's been helped you in some way. Uh, just as a quick reminder as we close, next week we will be talking about uh, mental health and the church, and talking about the church's role and responsibility in mental health. And last week, in the last week over in the auditorium, uh, Pastor Holland will be talking about uh, Bible Baptist Church as a a caring church, and that being one of our fundamentals uh, that makes our church what it is. Um, I hope that you'll stay connected with both through the podcast or through the website. And again, if you have any questions about something I said, or you're looking for more resources, podcasts, books, articles, or anything else that can help you, feel free to come up and talk to me after. Um, Choose Joy. I hope that this week will choose joy, have a constant joy. And I hope that this week you'll overcome your anger. And we don't have to f- have sinful anger. No, because we can overcome it through forgiveness. And so I hope that we'll do that this week. Uh, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed.